Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to the June edition of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha. Uh, joining us today, our illustrious group of physicians. Uh, going down my list, I've got Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Hello, everyone. And our two EMS fellows, Dr. Aaron McGlynn. Dr. McGlynn, welcome. Hi, Jeff. Hi, everyone. And Dr. Nick Leklinski. Dr. Leklinski, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, everyone. Uh, no notices from the system this month, but I do want to extend at the start here a special thank you to Drs. McGlynn and Leklinski as they wrap up their fellowship with OEM. Uh, it's been a great pleasure working with you over the last year, and we wish you the best in all future endeavors. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate it. And with that said, a uh, brief message from medical director, Dr. Weston. All right. Thank you, Jeff. So, you know, despite uh, the name emergency medical services that we go by, there are very few truly time-sensitive emergencies. But this topic, strokes, uh, is one of them. 1.9 million neurons are lost for every minute that a stroke is untreated. It's really a number that, that you can't even, uh, no pun intended, wrap your head around. It's an unfathomable number. Uh, but that's why this podcast and this information is really so critical. Uh, so we'll talk about when to assess stroke in the first place, how to do that assessments, uh, why alerts and last no well time is so important, why we do our systems-based approach with the hospitals to stroke care, and of course, what actually happens once you get to that hospital. So sharpening your skills here can make a huge difference in the outcome and life of your patient. So pay close attention, and thank you for joining us, and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thanks. Dr. Weston, thanks so much. And without further ado, uh, handing the reins over to Drs. McGlynn and McClinsky. Thanks, Jeff. So hello again, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Like Jeff mentioned, this is our last podcast of the of the fellowship year. So sad. Um, so we have really enjoyed doing these every month, and we hope you found them helpful. Uh, let's dive into our content for June. So we're taking a closer look at strokes and stroke management and why some of the reasons were mentioned by Dr. Weston, but just so you know, June is also aphasia awareness month. We also know that diagnosing stroke is time sensitive, but the diagnosis can be tough because findings are not always obvious. There are some nuances to stroke evaluation that we wanna cover with a goal of improving our pre-hospital stroke care. What we most often see trip providers up here is when trying to evaluate for speech difficulty, when uh, not doing an exam for a stroke when the patient is altered or is unable to complete the entire exam, and when the patient is only presenting with very subtle findings like dizziness. So how common exactly are strokes? So roughly by the data, about every 40 seconds, someone in the U.S. is having a stroke, and every three minutes and 14 seconds, someone dies from a stroke. So those numbers are quite staggering, but just kind of shows you how common strokes are. And nearly one in four strokes occur in people who have had strokes before. 87% um, of those strokes are ischemic strokes, meaning there's a blockage of the blood flow to a certain area of the brain. And the rest of those 13% are what we call hemorrhagic strokes, are from bleeding from a blood vessel in the brain that causes um, the blood flow there to be disrupted. Stroke leads to a lot of costs, both in the healthcare and medicine to treat the strokes, as well as missed days of work and downstream factors for people who cannot return to their baseline after strokes. Stroke-related costs were estimated to be about $56.5 billion from 2018 to 2019, which is just staggering. One of the concepts that we often hear about 
related to stroke is morbidity. You might be more familiar with mortality, which is the rate at which people die from a condition, but morbidity actually refers to people who do not die from the disease, but have a health or quality of life impact from it. Stroke has a really significant associated morbidity. More than half of stroke survivors over the age of 65 have reduced mobility, which can impact their ability to work, live independently, and complete their daily activities. The risk for stroke increases with age, but stroke can actually occur at any age. In fact, in 2014, 38% of people hospitalized for stroke were under the age of 65. On that note, we have our pediatric emergency medicine fellow, Dr. Swathi Prasad, here today to give us some info on stroke in pediatric patients. Welcome, Dr. Prasad. Thanks. The most important thing to remember is that kids can and do have strokes. Babies are actually at a higher risk than children or teenagers, but frontline providers are more likely to be called for children and teens. Compared to adults, there is a high risk of non-recognition of strokes in children, which can ultimately impact their outcomes. Time is brain, so don't fall into the trap of thinking that children can't have a stroke. Children have strokes for different reasons than adults. Even within the pediatric population, splitting how we think about strokes into infants versus children and toddlers may help you triage questions and next steps. Premature infants, which are least likely to be seen by community providers, have brain bleeds and hemorrhagic strokes from trauma to fragile blood vessels or ischemic strokes from an increased risk of clotting in the weeks after birth. Pertinent history questions for infant calls include asking about maternal medications, such as blood thinners, or maternal conditions, including bleeding and clotting disorders. Asking about vitamin K injections in infants in the first days to weeks of life may also be relevant for risk factors for bleeding. Children and toddlers have specific diseases and conditions that put them at higher risk of stroke as well, but are not necessarily the blood pressure or cholesterol risk factors of adults. Big red flag medical diagnoses to keep in mind include sickle cell disease or other hematologic conditions, autoimmune disorders, anatomical diseases such as Moya Moya disease, and congenital heart disorders. Great. Thank you, Dr. Prasad. That's really helpful to hear about some less common but still concerning pediatric potential strokes. So we'll get back to some more general stroke care. So we get information from our hospital partners on patients who do end up having strokes that did not have activated stroke alerts. Most of the strokes that we miss are on patients who never had a stroke evaluation or a stroke scale completed. Now that might sound really obvious, you know, we're not going to find a stroke if we don't look for it, but our point is that we just want to have a higher suspicion for a larger variety of patients. It's better to complete a normal stroke exam than to not complete one at all. So let's start with a brief overview of who should be evaluated for a stroke. And when we say evaluated, we mean with a BFAST and a subsequent SNOW exam if indicated. To start with the obvious, anyone with a complaint of unilateral weakness, numbness, or speech difficulties, which can include slurred speech or difficult time speaking, um, those are a couple of people you want to make sure you're doing your BFAST exam for all the time. Visual disturbances is another complaint we should evaluate. While we are particularly worried about certain patterns of vision loss, it is better to just evaluate anyone with visual complaints. Next, those with dizziness, mainly described as room spinning or feeling off balance, or those with altered mental status should also have a stroke scale completed. Further, headache has to prompt some more questions that could indicate the need for a stroke exam. Additionally, if there is any mention of a stroke slash possible stroke in the dispatch data, then a stroke exam should be conducted as part of your evaluation. Just because the person appears normal on your arrival does not mean they do not have subtle findings of a stroke. A note on those with altered mental status. 
These patients are obviously challenging to thoroughly evaluate, but we need to do everything we can to determine the ideology of their altered mentation. While altered mental status is not a necessarily common presentation of stroke, it is quite worrisome when it's present. Nick, what are some reasons a patient with a stroke might be altered? Well, that's a fantastic question. Uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is they could have a massive head bleed. Now, these are some sick patients and present similarly to your TBI patients. They're difficult to arouse. They have irregular respirations, unequal pupils, and in the most severe cases, they have some posturing. Now, in ischemic strokes, they can also present with altered mental status if they're having a, some dysarthria or aphasia, i.e. they're having a difficult time speaking. They may be slurring their words or maybe have the inability to speak due to the stroke. And so we might think they're altered when it's actually they're having a stroke. We'll discuss the nuances of these in a couple of minutes when we discuss the stroke exam themselves. The point here being, if you have someone who is talking funny or refusing to talk, a stroke evaluation may be warranted. All right, so on to the nuances of the stroke exam. To start, we wanna emphasize that it's almost never inconclusive. A lot of times we hear that a BFAST or a stroke evaluation is inconclusive, meaning that you weren't able to reliably complete the whole exam, so you marked it as inconclusive or unable to be done. We're trying to change this mentality because most of the time there is at least a portion of the exam that you can do. Whether it's looking for a facial droop, testing for unilateral weakness, there are some aspects that can be completed even if the patient is not able to fully cooperate. So while the BFAST may be incomplete, rarely inconclusive. Stating something like BFAST or stroke scale without facial droop or weakness, but unable to complete the other aspects, secondary to patient cooperation, et cetera, something like that is better than just reporting inconclusive without sharing the findings you did obtain. If any parts of the BFAST are positive, that's a positive exam, even if it's incomplete. So let's go through the components of the BFAST exam and review. Remember, BFAST stands for balance, eyes, face, arms, speech, and terrible headache. While it's important to do a complete exam when able, there are certain aspects that become more crucial depending on the part of the patient's chief complaint. So starting with balance, this really refers to a sudden loss of balance. Patients with a balance issue might be those who complain of dizziness, vertigo, like the room spinning around them, or feeling like they're on a boat, or they might feel like they have difficulty walking, just feeling off balance in your initial history. Patients who have these balance issues that are due to a stroke is typically related to a problem in the cerebellum, which is a structure at the base of the brain or the brainstem. When you have a problem in this location, it leads to balance trouble. That's often described as feeling like my balance is off or I have trouble walking rather than I feel like the room is spinning. There are a lot of causes of dizziness we look for and the ones that lead to acute difficulties walking are the most concerning for potential stroke. Now, Personally, for me, I find dizziness to be quite an annoying complaint to evaluate because it can encompass so many different things. But when we're trying to get at, is this from a stroke? Some important questions that I like to ask are, describe the dizziness for me. Things like room spinning sensation or rocking like I'm on a boat are more concerning. Sometimes the patients will say that they feel dizzy when in reality they feel more lightheaded as if they're going to pass out. And lightheadedness is usually less concerning for a stroke. Another question is, how do you normally get around? Do they use a walker? Do they normally have some balance issues? It's a good idea to get a sense of their baselines to know if they're altered from it or if they're having new issues. And then how did this sensation come on? Is this something you've had for weeks with trouble walking or were you able to walk a few hours ago, but now are having new and worsening trouble because we are looking for a new problem today? So those are some questions I like to ask. 
So when you're doing this part of the exam, the most crucial thing is to walk the patient. It's really easy to keep them seated and comfortable. Maybe they're hooked up to the monitor. It's just tough to get them up and walking around. But if dizziness is a complaint, try to get them up to walk. We often even miss this in the ER, but it's a really important way to look for things like stumbling, needing support that they don't normally need, or noticing if they're drifting to one side. If the patient can't walk due to underlying medical problems, have them sit up unsupported, either in a chair or on the edge of the bed, and see if they can keep their torso in one place. If they seem to drift off to one side or the other or start to wobble, that can also be a sign that they're having a balance difficulty. Again, as with all parts of the exam, it is crucial to understand what the patient's baseline is and how this relates to their ability to walk as we are concerned about the new findings with balance issues identified with specifically walking abnormalities. A history of vertigo or dizziness should still get a stroke exam, and while symptoms similar to previous are more reassuring, if the patient has trouble with their balance on your exam, this is now a concern for an acute stroke. That is a lot to chew on. In summary, there are patient complaints that make you concerned about potential balance problems, which are best identified by walking a patient, and if abnormal, this is a positive finding for a pre-hospital stroke identification. All right, on to the eyes. So this is a little bit more straightforward. Why do we care about the eyes? Well, the visual centers of the brain are all stored in one area towards the back of the brain, the area we call the occipital region. Strokes in this area will result in visual disturbances like sudden loss of vision or partial loss of vision in one eye, but sometimes both eyes, depends on where that stroke occurred. Anyone with a vision complaint should have a stroke assessment done. The important questions to ask here are for the patient to describe that visual disturbance. If they say something like, I can't see at all out of my left eye or the top half of my vision is gone, those things are more concerning for a stroke. Sometimes we'll hear about generalized blurry vision, which is a little bit less specific. Another question to ask is, does it get better if you close your eyes? True visual field disturbances don't get better if they close the affected eye. So when we're talking about a visual field, that means both eyes and someone who closes one eye will still have an issue seen out of part of that other eye. Typically strokes occur quickly, meaning one minute the patient is at their baseline, the next something is drastically different. So these are changes that occurred suddenly, not problems the patient has had ongoing for weeks to months. Another thing to ask about is any flashers, halos, or floating lights. These things are considered artifacts in their vision and are more likely an issue with the structure of the eye, like a detached retina, and less so with the brain, but they're still important to get information on. These symptoms might be things that would improve if they close that affected eye, and that can help you kind of distinguish if it might be related to a stroke. So we're talking about how to test this uh, on your exam. We test for visual field cuts by having the patient look directly at your nose and assess if they can see your fingers in the center of each eye and then to the left and right of their visual field. Now it's important to have them stay focused on your nose to keep this test the most accurate. You don't want their eyes deviating to the right or the left as they're trying to see your fingers. So you wanna keep them focused on their nose. And then while looking at the eyes, you can also assess pupils. So while pupil abnormalities are not part of the BFAS, they are something you should be looking at for all your patients who are having neurological presentations as subtle clues like unilateral dilation or bilateral pinpoint pupils make you go back and reassess for subtle BFAS findings. So if you have someone with abnormal pupillary findings, that might prompt you to do a full BFAS stroke exam. All right, so we've covered B and E on to face here. So pretty sure you all know what we mean when we're looking at the patient's face. The muscles of the face are controlled by an area of the brain. And so strokes that are in that area can result in that facial droop. 
usually this is something that's fairly obvious, but again, you're going to have to dig into that patient's baseline because plenty of people have residual stroke findings and may have a droop at baseline. So today we're looking for, is that a new or worsening facial droop? You may hear complaints of th something like a dry or painful eye because the person can't close their eyelid normally, or even just trouble holding food or liquids in their mouths. Sometimes patients don't notice the droop in their face, but they'll call for complaints about the eye or the mouth. You can have the patient smile or ask them to show you their teeth to get a sense of whether their motor function works in their face. You're looking for equal rise of their lips when they smile or that their teeth are equally exposed on both sides. Another subtle finding you can look for is flattening of the nasolabial fold, which is the crease between your cheek and your nose on one side. And that can sometimes show a more subtle sign of weakness. All right, now moving on to arms. Similar to the face, the muscles and sensation controls that controls our arms and legs are clustered in one area. Therefore, strokes in these areas can result in muscle weakness and or numbness on that side of the body. Notice how I mentioned legs too. The A and B fast refers to arms, but you also want to make sure you're evaluating the legs as well. Similar to face, this is usually a pretty obvious finding and patients are usually aware if their arm or leg is acutely not functioning. However, check for this by asking about grip strength. Are they dropping things, unable to pick up the remote or hold their cell phone like they normally could? Stuff like that. Most times patients will be complaining of the effect of feeling heavy or dead. An example of this is that I actually, there's someone that I knew that woke up, um, she woke up with her left arm feeling asleep and she noticed it was odd as she didn't have that pins and needles type sensation you normally have if you slept on your arm wrong. And she knew that something was wrong at that time and she actually was diagnosed with a stroke. So the point here being that the, the arm or the affected limb that's, um, that is weak is normally painless as the stroke knocks out the sensation in that arm as well. So the easiest way to test for normal motor function in a fully conscious person is having them lift both arms up in front of them like they're holding a big pizza box and have them close their eyes and keep their arms up. If one arm is affected, it will drop right away or slowly begin to drift down. You can also test things like grip strength to find a little bit more subtle weakness. For the legs, have the patient lift their leg off the bed or the chair against your resistance. If they're sitting in a chair, you can have them slowly kick their knee out towards you against resistance and then have them pull their leg back in. They can also do this laying in bed with their knees bent. Looking for numbness, you can lightly touch the upper middle and lower part of the arms and the legs and make sure they're feeling that normally on both sides. Now, one point to bring up is trying to do this exam in the altered or unconscious patient. This exam is definitely more useful in a conscious patient, but it can be something we can also do for someone who is unconscious or altered. This can be done to assess for response to noxious stimuli, you can do this by applying nail bed pressure or pinching each limb to see if the patient withdraws. If they do in all limbs but one, that is concerning for unilateral weakness. If they have no response, you can test for muscle tone by ranging each limb, such like flexing, extending each limb and see if one feels more loose than the other, as that can also be a subtle sign of paralysis in that limb. A patient who is acutely altered or conscious when you, with unilateral muscle weakness and or unequal pupils is very concerning for a massive hemorrhagic stroke. So that's why we want to make sure we're doing these exams on these types of patients if possible. All right, moving on to speech. So this is another tricky area to evaluate because there's such a wide variety of presentations. Like everything else we discussed so far, there are certain areas of the brain that control speech. There are different areas that include comprehension of speech, forming of speech, and the actual muscle movement of the mouth to get the words out. 
We stress this because speech difficulties can look like someone who doesn't understand a single word you're saying or can't form the words they're trying to or just can't get the words out. Patient history is a little harder to obtain, especially if the patient isn't able to communicate normally with you. This might be a situation where a loved one, a friend, or a family member calls because the patient is suddenly not making sense when they talk. It's critical to understand that the two types of speech abnormalities you are looking for are dysarthria and aphasia. Dysarthria is difficulty in speaking due to the muscles used to make speech being weak. Aphasia is a comprehension or communication disorder due to the area of the brain that forms or understands speech being inhibited. So let's talk about how we look for those findings. So your BFAST exam includes findings of dysarthria and aphasia. This is where you have the patient say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. The patient may just slur the statement, which indicates muscle weakness or lack of coordination and is concerning for a stroke. The long and short of it is that if the patient can't correctly repeat the statement, then that is a positive speech finding. Remember that slurred speech can be subtle. So you wanna make sure you use family or friends to ask if that's how the patient normally talks. Now, if the stroke is in the part of the brain that comprehends the speech, the patient will simply stare at you with a blank or confused or panic look because they have no idea what you're saying to them. As it, to them, it just will come off as gibberish or a foreign language. If like that's the equivalent, they just can't quite understand what you're saying. If the stroke is in the portion of the brain that forms the words, they'll say some complete nonsense such as fork, potato, fork, grass. This is what we call word salad. And while it might be confused for intoxication, uncooperation, or a comedy routine, it is actually a sign of a stroke. Both of those findings are indicative of aphasia. Now, we know there are a lot of other things that can cause a patient to have dysarthria or aphasia, such as hypoglycemia, fatigue, mental health problems, or intoxicants. And this is where you have to try and really use all of the pieces of information you have about the patient to try and tease out what is causing the slurred speech. Remember, intoxicated patients can have strokes. So look for other findings of a positive BFAST and always err on the side of caution. Okay, and the last part of BFAST, terrible headache. So this is another symptom that we often overlook because a lot of people have headaches. What we're looking for is a sudden onset headache that rapidly reaches maximal intensity, described as the worst headache of my life, which might indicate a hemorrhagic stroke. This is not the headache that has been developing over a couple of days or weeks, not usually the headache that feels like my usual migraine. It often might be associated with some concerning history, such as physical exertion, uh, working out, or even sexual intercourse. There are not any real specifics on the exam for this other than maybe unequal pupils, but you might not always see that, and likely a patient who appears very uncomfortable and likely in some distress. All right, so now we want to talk about briefly screening for those large vessel occlusions. So while we spend a decent amount of time covering the BFAST exam, it is something that can be completed in about 60 seconds. If you aren't sure of any of the, your findings, repeat the exam. It won't take you much time and you can help pick up any subtle findings you may have missed the first time around. Alternatively, you could have one of your partners complete this exam and see if they have similar deficits or find similar findings. These findings are not always obvious, so repeating the exam may help pick up on those subtle deficits. If your BFAST is positive, then you need to screen for an LVO. The LVO screen is called SNOW, probably something you're familiar with, but LVO, we don't always discuss what it stands for. It stands for large vessel occlusion. As the name implies, it's a result of a clot in one of the large blood vessels in the brain. These are crucial to identify as patients can benefit from thrombectomy, which is a procedure where we go in and remove the clot from that vein to restore blood flow. 
Only certain hospitals can perform this procedure, so the absence or presence of a positive LVO screen changes the patient's disposition. And we'll talk more about stroke hospital capabilities in a minute. LVOs commonly result in a constellation of symptoms, which is the theory behind the LVO screen and why we look for the speech abnormalities, neglect, and ocular deviation. So to cover that just a little more in depth, so SNOW stands for speech, neglect, and ocular deviation. So for speech, we covered this a couple minutes ago, but you're looking for signs of aphasia that we discussed. With neglect, as the name implies, this is when the patient does not acknowledge or pay attention to one side of their body. We test this by touching both the patient's arm and ask which side we are touching. If they only think you're touching one side, then that's a positive finding. You may also notice that the patient doesn't acknowledge or recognize someone standing on one particular side of the room, um, or that would be like the side that they are neglecting. All right, and then ocular deviation. So this is also pretty self-explanatory. If you notice the patient's eyes are looking to one side predominantly, this is ocular deviation. Tends to be a pretty obvious finding as the patient's eyes will appear stuck in one direction. All right, let's circle back to peds again with a focus on what we should look for on our history and physical exam. Dr. Prasad, what exactly should we be on the lookout for? So pediatric presentations of stroke may be more difficult to discern than those of adults. Infants may present with seizure-like activity, often in one part of the body, but not necessarily. Excess sleepiness that affects their ability to wake or to feed, or weakness or stiffness in one extremity. Children, similar to adults, may be able to describe weakness to one side of the body, such as their arms or legs, but may also present with falling to one side, slurred speech or incoherent speech, sensation changes, balance issues, or with a bad headache, atypical of their usual. Specific pediatric conditions that increase the risk of stroke and are always important to know about when called regarding abnormal movements or altered mental status or headache include hematologic diseases, most commonly sickle cell disease, of which a significant percentage of pediatric patients will have a stroke recognized or not by age 10, moya-moya disease, which is an anatomic narrowing of the carotid or cerebral arteries, increasing the risk of stroke, congenital heart disease, systemic infections, including MISC or other inflammation, and genetic or metabolic disorders, including MELAS, which is a syndrome that includes putting children at risk of stroke. That was a lot of information. The summary is, though, that kids can have stroke, and they are at the highest risk of non-identification due to possible delay of presentation from parents not realizing what's going on, delay of recognition by any and all providers, and limited access to the right diagnostic tools. Asking about a history of sickle cell disease or other blood-related disorders or a history of congenital heart disorders, as well as current medications, including blood thinners, is important to bringing up stroke on your differential. Presentation can be similar to adults, but can also be afebrile seizures in a patient with or without a seizure history. Getting these patients to the appropriate center sooner for pediatric evaluation and age-appropriate imaging is the best thing you can do for them. Thank you so much, Dr. Prasad. We appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and talk about this, hopefully low frequency, but definitely high fidelity type situation. So thanks so much for taking the time. So up next, we want to take a few minutes to talk about what happens next once your patient gets to the hospital. What happens to your patient in the emergency department after the stroke alert is activated? So most of you have probably seen at least the first part of this. It usually starts with a brief evaluation by the ED physician, followed by a CAT scan of the patient's head. 
the CT is done without contrast. This is the best way to see if there's any bleeding or a hemorrhagic stroke. Sometimes our expert radiologists can see signs of an ischemic stroke too, but that is much more difficult without contrast. If the non-contrast head CT does not show any bleeding, this points towards any ischemic stroke as the cause of symptoms. Depending on the severity of symptoms and the patient's goals of care, they can be treated with thrombolytic or clot-busting medication. This is usually TPA or TNK, both medications that break up clots and can improve stroke outcomes. Of course, the trade-off is that there is an increased risk of bleeding when we give this medication. So there are some extensive guidelines on who can and cannot receive it. One of the important things to know is that after a person has an ischemic stroke, the affected area of the brain has inflammation and cell breakdown due to lack of proper blood flow to the area. This can lead to disruption of the blood-brain barrier and can lead to bleeding, which we call hemorrhagic conversion, meaning the ischemic stroke has now turned to a hemorrhagic stroke. The key thing to know here is that thrombolytics are only recommended within four and a half hours of symptom onset or from the last known well. This time frame essentially represents a cutoff of when potential benefit is outweighed by risk. From the time of symptom onset to four and a half hours later, the thrombolytics might help restore blood flow enough to preserve some of the affected brain tissue. That's why you'll hear us say time is brain. After four and a half hours, however, restoring blood flow is unlikely to improve symptoms and is more likely to cause harm by that hemorrhagic conversion or bleeding into the brain. So what about your LVO patients? Thrombolytics have been around for quite a while to treat ischemic stroke, but newer technology called thrombectomy, aka clot removal, has become much more common these days. Thrombectomy for stroke works best for a large blood vessel in the brain because it isn't feasible to navigate to all the tiny blood vessels all over the brain. This is where LVO comes in. Patients with symptoms that suggest LVO might benefit from thrombectomy, and they have a longer time frame where intervention is feasible. Rather than that four and a half hour window for thrombolytics, patients have a range of six to 24 hours for a thrombectomy. This is nuanced and depends on the whole clinical picture, but in general, we usually use the cutoff of 24 hours. Patients who have already gotten thrombolytics can still go for thrombectomy too. While we're on this note, this is kind of where the difference between a primary and a comprehensive stroke center comes in. These are classifications determined by accrediting bodies to delineate which hospitals can take care of stroke patients. Primary stroke centers can administer thrombolytics like TPA or TNK and can also do CT imaging with contrast like CT angiograms to identify an LVO stroke, even if the physical exam findings are subtle. In our system, these are hospitals that accept BFAST positive patients with a negative LVO screen or LVO positive patients that are greater than 15 minutes from a comprehensive stroke center. The reason for this in our system is that it is most important to get the clot-busting medications like TPA or TNK into the patient if they are far from the comprehensive stroke center. Further studies can then be used to confirm or identify an LVO and move the patient to the next level of care if needed. Using the structure in which our strokes have been set up currently allows our system to best function for stroke patients. And finally, what about those patients outside of these windows? You have likely seen patients with a last known well much longer than four and a half hours or even 24 hours. They will likely get a similar evaluation, but won't be candidates for thrombolytics or thrombectomy. They might get other imaging like CT angiogram or an MRI to gather more information. 
for all patients with strokes, whether treated with thrombolytics or thrombectomy or not, need to be evaluated for long-term management and prevention. So that you know they need other things like medications, physical therapy, occupational therapy, et cetera. So have you noticed a theme in how we approach the treatment of strokes? It's time. This is why we're always talking about the importance of a last known well. The treatment options available to stroke patients are heavily dependent on when their symptoms started. If we don't know a last known well, we have to assume it is outside the window for treatment due to the potential harm that can be caused. So you're the detective in the pre-hospital setting. You are able to gather information and clues that are not obvious once the patient is in the hospital. Info from the family is crucial because a lot of times family doesn't make it to the hospital right away and we can't use their information to make decisions. Talking to neighbors, caretakers, or even a friend the patient talked to on the phone can help narrow down the last known well. We've even seen crews use information like the food on the dinner table was still warm. So you can get creative and use your detective brain. Of course, we're not asking you to delay your time on scene to figure out every little detail, but anything you pick up will certainly be appreciated. Whew, all right. That was a lot to cover. And so that's a, that's quite a lot to, to chew on, but you know, it's an important topic that we wanted to make sure we covered in great detail. So to summarize, have a high suspicion for stroke. Make sure you're completing a BFAST uh, on anyone that you have concern for. And that does include walking your patient. And then when in doubt, repeat your exam and look for those subtleties that might you might have missed the first time. And then, you know, if indicated, get your patient to a comprehensive stroke center if their LVO screen is positive and you're less than 15 minutes away. Otherwise, make sure we get into a primary stroke center where patients can get their initial eval and then further treatment um, and interventions from there. So as mentioned, this is our last installment of Push Dose EMS. We're so glad to have had the opportunity to work with you all this throughout this year. As I know we've learned a lot from a lot of different avenues, but being able to spend time with you, everyone in the field and doing these podcasts has been such a great learning opportunity for us. So we thank you all for having us and we've really enjoyed being around. So while we won't be here next month, uh, do you have to look forward to, they'll be, we'll be talking about atrial dysrhythmias and diltiazem. So until then, enjoy the warm weather, stay safe and take care. Dr. Lukonski, McGlynn, thank you very so very much for all your efforts with the county over the last year of your fellowship. We do appreciate all your efforts, especially today, some really great information and reminders on stroke assessments and the needs for the hows and whys that we do things. So I appreciate it. And especially thanks to everybody else out there listening. Uh, stay safe and we'll see you next month.